All right, so on this episode of the podcast, we're going to be talking about professional writing. You know, in the room right now, we have three professional writers and one writer that's on the come up. So this episode is just going to be all about the journey that we took to get where we are right now and lessons that we have for other people that want to become professional writers or want to kind of find their niche, because that's kind of what's interesting about the group that we have right now. So I'm Jason Rose. I'm a marketing writer that comes from a journalism background. Here with James Dowd, who's kind of a screenwriter, who's now transitioned to be a traditional agency copywriter. Zim, who transitioned from, you know, PhD at Yale, academic and classics, to now a professional marketing writer. And then Jimmy Burt, who is, well, what's your background, Jimmy? Honestly, I don't know. Let's start with you. Since you're the one that's on the come up, share a little bit of how you got here. Thanks, Rosie. Uh, on the come up sounds good. Yeah. I hope I can stay on the come up. But I, uh, I don't have a traditional background in writing beyond school as a political science major, so there's a bunch of writing going on there, but as Zim can attest to, that, that was more on the academic side, uh, more formal than uh, what I'm getting into now. Um, but I've always been, you know, I, I wasn't a huge reader growing up, which I regret, but I've always been writing, you know, whether it was music, playing around with scripts, just stories. Uh, for fun, really. Uh, I wouldn't share necessarily share them with people, but I would. I was always writing something. And so once I learned about the marketing and advertising world and found out that there was an area where you could write for more, more you know, broad, a broad audience uh, that didn't require you to read a book about the 2008 election, I, you know, my eyes perked up and I was like, oh, let's strap on and learn more about it. So then I, you know, got into studying about marketing and advertising and the writing behind it and how to write for that. And I thought I knew a decent amount, but just in my short time uh, with digital surgeons, I've learned thousands, thousands and thousands of times more from the man himself, James Dowd, and you, Rose. <laughs> And you, Zim. So that's a testament to not only how successful James and you have been, but also how successful you guys have been at molding Zim in a short time just with uh, his transition, which was pretty hardcore. It's really interesting that you say that you didn't get into writing at kind of a later age. And I don't know if Sim and James shared this with me, but writing for me was one of those things that growing up when I was in elementary school, second or third grade, I was obsessed with writing. You know, you had the kind of short stories that you had to make for your class. And I would be the one that if they told us it had to be 10 pages, I'd write this 40 page children's book about the alien invasion because I just saw Mars attacks and I happened to be into aliens. So I was like, like that at a very young age. But then I think through middle school and high school, I was in the, whatever the standard kind of low English class I was in. I know it means an advanced English class. And it just kind of was something that I didn't think I could do professionally at any point, you know. So I took my attention else there, elsewhere. And even through undergrad college, it was something I liked doing, but I didn't really have the confidence to go after it. So do you think that's part of why now you suddenly, like you felt like you could do it and it was this real attainable thing? Or, you know, what kind of led to that later stage suddenly he grabbing still onto it? Yeah. He still doesn't. He still doesn't. Well, you the, guys. The simple story is that me and Zim, we discovered him. We discovered raw talent out there on the streets. <laughs> he was in like a, he was like a sales rep for Anheuser-Busch and we discovered him and we, we built him into what he is today. Do you not agree with that, Jimmy? That's, that'll be the story. It's, it's, it's pretty much the story. Well, you want, here's the true story. This job position was out in the open for almost two years and I shit on every single candidate that came in. As you know, Rose, you had to sit through all those interviews where I was a terrible monster. And then your application came in. I went over to Jamie's desk, looked at your portfolio, and I said, it's terrible. And she's like, no, no, no. He didn't go to a school for this. He's not trained. He's, you know, but he has passion. He put together a book on his own. It's all spec work. It's all out of school. We got to respect that. And I said, no, it's, it's terrible. 
So if I'm someone listening, wait, to wait, this but it who, keeps going. It yeah, keeps yeah. going. So so I just walked. I walked away. Didn't even go deeper into it. But then Jimmy here got to Zim through neighbors. Jimmy here got to Dave, our former CEO, through coworkers, coworkers of district. And I said, with someone with this much passion, that they're gonna find two ways in to get to me. I'm at least gonna meet. And I gave you the toughest interview that most professionals have ever had to go through. You had to do stand up comedy. I was there it was on a very the spot. Tough, it was a very tough interview. You had to take my writing test, which even Jason Rose refused to finish. He gave up halfway through. And the fact that you finished and you sat outside to finish it, that was where like I was like, okay, we're gonna keep going with this kid. We're gonna keep talking to him. We're gonna get to know him more. Two years of beating people up and no one was able to get through that gauntlet and you did. So that's a good sign. Well, I realized very quickly that that writing test is just hazing. It is, but it's, I wanna see how they react to the hazing. 100%. Jason, th- speak truth to power. Thank you. <laughs> so if I'm listening to this and I'm someone who wants to get into writing, is that really what Take you, the hazing. That's what you recommend, that just show more passion than yeah. everyone else because there's a million people that want to be writers. And then, you know. Jimmy Burt is first one in, last one out. He's reading, he's researching. I'm seeing you drop stuff in a Slack that you're going and researching. What's an insight? You know, whatever you're dropping in there. You're doing the research that it takes to get there. Most people wait till someone gives it to them. And that's just no way to succeed. I'd say one of the things that I think you did, James, with that test is that uh, use it as a barometer of hustle, of, how, of, of your work ethic. I think it, it was Great. more of a of grit. Which I'm a big fan of. I yeah. think everyone you say grit, I say will over skill. Will over skill. I believe in less is more, so grit instead of uh, will over skill. One word instead of three. Um, <laughs> Why? Well, yeah. Well, I say it in one word when you can say it in three great words. Uh, but beyond that, uh, Jimmy proved beyond will, there's an innate talent that comes with being a writer. It's really hard to teach someone to be a writer or how to write. We all went through a certain level of education, and everyone out there, it doesn't mean they're a great writer. But Jimmy's a perfect example. He had a grit. We opened the door to him. He came in. He worked hard. But at the same time, he showed an innate talent to be able to learn new things and then go and tackle challenges So whether it's writing very research-driven, analytical, logistical copy that's meant to serve a very specific purpose or something that's supposed to come from the heart or the gut and it's supposed to move someone emotionally, you've been able to shift back and forth between it, and that's rare. And so that's why this was an internship, and now it's going to be a full-time job as of next week because it's so rare for someone to be able to do that and on top of that to want to learn. You know, even driving over here, we were talking about copywriters, and I, I referenced one. That person went to a portfolio school. You know, they had the pedigree. They went to all the right places. They learned from all the right professors. They worked at the agencies, and if you look at it, they look like goddamn idiots when in their writing. They just write a bunch of punny headlines, and that's all they can do. They learn the craft, but they do not have the talent, and they do not have the will or the grit to do something with it. Do you think you can teach basic mechanics of writing? Is that teachable? Sure. I mean, we all have basic mechanics of writing. But like, think along, along the lines of strunk and white, like the elements of style. Elements of style. Do you think that sort of study is beneficial for writers? So, curious now because you talk about the innate talent, but I do think that well, I think there's even certain... great writers can be like it's uh, it can be untamed. It sometimes needs to be controlled and use learning some of those because the way we think, you might have great ideas as far as writing goes, but the way we think and the way we write, those are very different processes at work. Writing and thinking. And sometimes we have these great thoughts that sound great when we speak them, but when it comes to how they appear on the written page, they can be awful. Too many adverbs, the thought runs on and on. So there needs to be some, you, you can learn that crap. Certainly, I think but I think they're that connected. Crap. That's why we always talk about reading things out loud or explaining to someone like they're an idiot or explain to someone what you want to say. And most of the time, the people who are struggling to write, if they just go, all I want to say is this, they say the thing they're, they're trying to write. It all comes out onto the page when they just speak it. And there's that barrier where they go, I'm not a writer, so I can't. And so it, it's not a huge difference between writing and speaking. It's the barrier that's created through self-confidence that limits them from turning thinking or speaking to writing. 
Yeah, I think um, back to the point about the elements of style and those kind of more mechanical guidelines is I think almost similar along the lines, not to give a shameless plug to the blog article we wrote about the 50 writing tips, is I feel there's a certain, there's something to be said for learning all the good rules. You know, that book, um, the name of it is completely escaping me right now, but it looked at all these, all the great works of literature and it compared what separates a book like The Sun Also Rises written by Hemingway to something like Fifty Shades of Grey that's super popular and doesn't necessarily have critical merit and tried to look for based on data what are the differences between the writing styles and they found certain things like adverbs again like you mentioned Mike that use L-Y I think Hemingway used something like 80 adverbs per 1,000 words. Fifty Shades of Grey, her name is also escaping me. She used something like 400 or 300. One per just, sentence. Yeah, it was just some of every, you know, it's constantly modifying. So there's certain rules that learning like that that certainly can elevate writing. So I think that's half of it. And then to James's point, I think the other half really is just eliminating the barrier and getting confident enough to to work at it and to understand that the first time you write a sentence, it's going to be terrible. The second time will be a little less terrible. Third time will be a little less terrible. The 25th time, you might have something that you're happy with. A lot of people write the first one, think, I'm not a writer, this is terrible, and then stop there. True. But the 50th rule in that blog article you wrote was break all the rules, which even to using LY, you know, adverbs, when you call me on using it, I often go, eh, fuck you. Yeah, sometimes you need to use them. You know, that's really the most important thing about learning rules is just learning when to break them. When you look at someone like uh, one of the last books I read was All the Pretty Horses by Cormac McCarthy, and he's an incredible writer. I mean, he doesn't follow any rules. His writing style is completely off the wall. He'll write, you know, huge run-on sentences. There's no real grammatical structure to a lot of it. Other times he'll write really taut sentences that are more along the lines of the Hemingways and the Steinbecks, but another perfect example of someone that just writes what works. So, Zim, we talked about how we kind of got into writing. What about you? Ah, uh, I think that my uh, my route to ending up uh, in digital marketing is probably the most circuitous. Uh, before I was in academia for, I want to say from the time I decided I wanted to start a PhD, it was in 2004. So 2003, 2004, so about 13 years. And so I spent 13 years doing uh, pretty much no creative writing, mostly academic writing. And academic writing is probably the most painful kind of writing to do. Boring to read. Painful to read. It is, uh, for audience, James loves emotion. You cannot put emotion into academic writing. You should, and it should have more emotion into it, but it's taught by, I think, a lot of, it's emotionless writing. It is plausible that, it is suggested that. You usually wouldn't say, I think this, I believe this. That'd be, only in certain places would you actually say, I believe. You are creating lots of hedges. You know, we say strong writing. Like, don't say it's, it, it appears that, just say it's that, I think that. And academic writing, like, no, 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 it's not you think, it's ice, it seems, or it appears that. So you're very precise. And I did it for years, and I didn't really like it that much. So we don't need to go into all the reasons why I decided to leave academia. That's a, that'd be a separate podcast in of itself, what of dealing with the academic economy. But when I did decide to leave, I remember at one point, and I want to go over this, we talked about this piece before, but sitting down one day and just writing a piece about why I went to academia and why I decided to leave. It was the first time I wrote some personal writing in close to 13 years, and I loved it. I mean, just the la- I was using language and words that you would never use in academic writing for the first time I'm using it. I remember showing it to my wife, Jen, and she said, you know, this is pretty good. And I never thought of myself as a writer up to that point. In fact, up till today, you know, when we're like, oh, we're all writers, I like, are we? Like, I don't even use that. We talk, James, about how we Wait, don't... did you say, are we, or did you say, am I? Am I. So no. you're challenging me? Exactly. <laughs> You don't even say you're the creative copyright. You're the you're the story director, right? Which well, that was the but that's your t- that's your title. 
that is my title. But if we're at a party and someone says, what do you do? I say, I to this day, say, say, I'm a writer. So I don't... It's uh, also easier to say that. Because if I say story director, no one has any idea right. what I'm talking about. If I say creative director, then no one knows what I'm talking about either. And so for a long time, especially when I first became a creative director, then it was like a new, fa- fresh, fancy title. I wanted that, you know? I would say that at a party, an event, whatever. Creative director. People would say, what's that? And my go-to was, it's like Mad Men, but less smoking, less sex, more alcohol. <laughs> Back to Sim's story. <laughs> Rose is like, ah, they hate that. No, because I think the reason Sim's story is so interesting or so n- important to a lot of people that might be listening to this is so there's been like this democratization of publishing, right? That people are putting more and more of their writing on the internet than ever before. Not just on the internet, the internet in the first place, social media. More people are writing than ever. There's a supreme shortage, though, of people that can really write. So why do you think so many people come out of academia and do so much writing through college and then struggle so mightily at it or don't have the confidence to make a career out of it? Wait, before you jump into that, though, talk about the the idea, because I know you've actually written about this, about just the scarcity of writing it through history. Yeah, so... Do you want me to explain? No, 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 explain. I mean, it's, it, that's a, it's a heavy it's a lot, question. yeah. But I think a lot about since I've come to uh, been at digital service, a digital marketing, this digital marketing company. I think a lot about writing, just in general, the history of writing. But I'd say at least uh, BJ Keto, who's our head of our head of business development, always asked me what goes through your head, Zim. So I tell him now a lot of different things go through my head. But I do think a lot about the history of writing and the history of writers. Uh, there's because of digital, we have this unlimited medium for writing. It wasn't always like that. Uh, in the ancient world, in ancient Greece or Rome, which is kind of my, what I'm trained in, writing was expensive because you wrote on papyrus. And these were not books. These are scrolls. Some of these scrolls could be as long as, I think, 40 or 50 feet long. And they had to, you take, you take actual reeds, papyrus reeds, and you'd put them in a perpendicular shape and you'd actually hammer them together. So it was expensive to write. A lot of people couldn't afford to write. Um, and then as time went on, we eventually, in the 4th century, get the innovation of the book, one of the big innovations in the history of the writing. Of writing. Someone got this idea, hey, I can take animal skin, stitch together, and create this thing called, uh, they call it the codex, but it's the book. So it wasn't, it wasn't cheap producing it. And then, of course, we get the printing press. That was, a, I'd say, prior to the internet, that was the most revolutionary invention in the history of communication, the printing press. Because all of a sudden, writing becomes a lot cheaper. Prior to that... Everything was done by hand. Medieval manuscripts were written by hand. And now with the Gutenberg's movable type printing press, you have a way of just printing a lot. and People can write more. Uh, but when I look at web writing, a lot of people can write, as we say, but a lot of it's not that great. I still, uh, we, I think we all read every day, but I can never get enough writing. I still find at the end of a long day when I've read a lot of web writing, I don't go home saying I'm exhausted with reading. I'm tired and I want good writing. <laughs> I'll just pick up a history book written by a great historian or even a Fitzgerald book and just read a few pages. It, f- it feels great to read that. And I think going back to your original question, like why, I think because it's cheaper than ever to write, you're seeing a lot of writing, but a lot of it isn't great. Great writing still stands out and catches my attention. Do you think it has something to do with there being less barriers to entry? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, a lot. I mean, because it's so much easier to write. But it, it's created this kind of Darwinian process where I still think the best or, you know, the best running catches my attention. Oh, that catches your attention, but not rises to the top. Because there's some really shitty writers out there who get a lot of attention, especially in our industry. Well, that's well, always we, been and, the case. I mean, you know, you got shitty writing yeah. like Neil Patel, 
you got <laughs> blowhards who just talk a lot about themselves, like uh, Gary Vaynerchuk. You know, not good writers, no. but people will read their content. But I don't think their writing will endure either. I can't imagine it's like 20 years from now saying, oh, man, that Neil Patel article, we're trashing it, but it's so great. With all due <laughs> respect, no, but it has like good, he has valuable insights into it. No, but I mean, uh, but Jason, I'm talking about, remember I showed you the blog by that, uh, that guy, Chris Catron, who was a PhD in class in UVA, who started a WordPress blog about leaving academia. And it's really good. I mean, you, I showed you, when you, Jason yeah. read he's like, I think you like his was like, this guy's a good writer. I mean, just from where the, is he now? Uh, he just got hired by Deloitte, but he left academia. And he when I, he told me he was hired by Deloitte, I was like, they're very lucky to have him. He is an incredible writer. I know it's good because it's a fairly long blog. It might have been two thousand words, and like most of us, I scanned it at first. Doesn't mean I'm not going to read it, but you are going to read that first paragraph, decide whether or not it's worth reading. And after reading just the first few sentences, like this guy is good. Well, that's like really the, good. This is great writing. That's the paradigm of art, though. Always, anyway, right? There's always going to be the you know, the novelists like the James Pattersons that sell a million novels that some people will shit on and say that, the, you know, the critics will say that it's not a work of art and that it's just churning out whatever the lawyer fiction or whatever it is that sells right. a million it's copies. formulaic. Yeah, and, I mean, it really raises the question of what makes something good, right? Is it because a lot of people enjoy it? Because in that case, the Stephen Kings and the James Pattersons of the world are the world's most read writers, and they mean the most to the most amount of people out there. The E.L. James, you know what I mean? The, the people that... They connect with far more writers than some niche writer that we might love. And the same could be said for marketing writing, that Neil Patel's... I can get on a high horse and say that I think I'm a better writer than Neil Patel, <laughs> but, you know, one, you one millionth of a people that read my stuff that read Neil Patel's stuff, so... But they're, re they're not reading him necessarily because they think it's great writing. They're reading because they think it's going to make me money. Well, yeah, it's very different. It's, it's purely... Uh, it's technical, and in that sense, it's technical, functional writing. You're not reading, no one says, I want to read great literary content. I'm going to read something by Gary Vaynerchuk, with all due respect. But they might. Are you, are you worried? That <laughs> no, no. Gary V is going to lash out on us? I'm just saying, I'm sure he knows well, like, he's not a, a great writer. And that's not why people read it. But there is content out there. We talk about the New Yorker all the time, where there are certain pieces I'll read where actually, it's sort of the opposite of a lot of web writing. I don't know if there's. This is not going to make me money, but damn, the style is so good. The rhythm is so powerful. You pick up on those things like the alliteration, the assonance, just the, the overall rhythm of the prose. And it's almost like you just sometimes don't even care about the content. There's something seductive about the prose. With a lot of web writing, you'll never, ever have that experience. But you will, with those pieces that endure, I go as far as, say, 30 years from now, if we were talking to someone younger, big, what's good writing? That New Yorker article on bonobo chimps or on AI versus uh, MD. I, mean, I think you sent me an article on that once. Read that. Independent of the overall point. That's what makes it timeless is the style and the rhythm. And it's harder and harder to find that now. But when it, I do find it, I read it again. And that's why you were telling me recently, you read a, you read The Great Gatsby or you read, we were talking about it, like, didn't you say like a few months ago you read it? Yeah. And you were, because we were talking about how when we were in high school, we're forced to realize books, but until you're exposed to the to the trove or trash of content out there, you don't appreciate what is good writing. I just thought, well, it's, for sure. it's fine, but that's how it all is. I want to go back and read a lot of those high school authors now because now I have new... It's wasted on us when we're in high school because we don't appreciate how good it is. And now I go back and read these great authors. I'm like, fuck, that is good. That's incredible. Like, that's really powerful prose. Well, that was the point I was just about to make, and this is the difference, is that the New Yorker has built up its credibility over, you know, whatever, the 100 years they've been publishing, and they've always known that the best writing anywhere. That's literally their tagline. The best writing anywhere. 
And so people go to the New Yorker, the subscriber base, and they expect that the best writing ever there. They expect to open a book review and there to be two full pages of typed out brilliance before they even mention the name of the book that they're about to review. Web writers, we don't get the same luxury because people are flipping through their mobile phones and you have a couple seconds to catch their attention. So someone reading our marketing blog, they're going to leave really, really quickly if we don't throw tension or something interesting or a lead in very, very like, close to the top. When I was in journalism school, one of my professors was the... Um, the editor for all of ESPN College Basketball. And I think they had something like five to 10 seconds to that most people spent on one of their pages. So that's an ESPN page. People that are going there are sports fans, and they're leaving in five to 10 seconds. So that shows how us who are doing marketing-based writing, how few precious seconds we really have. But back to the original point that I think it's all, you know, the New Yorker is doing the same exact thing Neil Patel is doing, which is trying to meet the needs of their audience. The New Yorker wants to give you the best writing anywhere. Neil Patel on his blog wants to make Joe Schmo feel like they can go on the internet and SEO optimize their website and make millions of dollars a year. Well, I think it goes back to your quote, though, that writing is masturbation. (laughs) That if all of my blog posts on on our thoughts page, absolute masturbation. If you went to it and you said, this isn't doing that, this isn't speaking to that. This isn't grabbing someone's attention here. My response would be, go to hell, because this is what I wanted to write. And most of my pride myself in writing them as fast as I can and not editing them or redoing it over and over and over again, because that's what I want to say at that time. And there's a certain level of art to it that I can look back pridefully and go, I wrote that right after me and Rose went for a walk. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel that a lot because this is actually an interesting question that I wanted to raise to all of us who don't have the privilege of writing most of the time what we're actually passionate about. You know, we're speaking, not to say we don't enjoy our jobs, but most of the time we're writing for the perspective of another brand, another thought leader who maybe we're ghostwriting for. Often we're more of surrogates for others to communicate better. So how does that affect how we like what we write? So, for example, to use the Neil Patel example, sometimes I feel like Neil Patel in a sense that there's an end outcome that I'm writing for, and I'm, gonna, I'm not going to do something that I would do if it was my private self, but because I know there's an end objective that we're going for. And I find that one of the most difficult things as being a professional writer in our industry is learning how to censor yourself and when to say, I love the writing in The New Yorker more than anything. It's my favorite magazine. But if I wrote like The New Yorker for clients of ours, it's not going to do anything for their business and we're going to get fired. So how do, you, how do you guys deal with kind of censoring your impulses as to what you think is good writing actually opposed to what is the writing that meets the needs of the clients or the person that you're communicating for. We talk about, I mean, that's one of the difficult things I find about writing this industry is that ultimately, at times, uh, the challenge of writing is surrendering your identity or you're surrendering your voice a bit. Because when you're writing something for a client, you're not, I don't want James Dow. I want James Dow, like that talent, to manifest itself in the voice of who I am as a brand. That's not going to be... But yeah, not censoring it. No, not censor. No, you're, but you're lending. You're you're transferring. You're. Yeah. It's, it's like you're adopting a See, different. See, because it's funny because I look at it as I get to hide it in their voice, like artistic signature. There's a. a copy- I like by the way. I like what you said about artistic signature because I think in in some capacity we've all written something where you're supposed to be writing in the voice of someone else, but you put in something that only you would do and no one else would. And if you know that person, you know that was from James. So I know that you'll write something big. That was 
Jason. <laughs> yeah, we all leave our fingerprints all over everything. And as much as we try to censor ourselves, there's still parts of us that we leave. And I, I take great pride in that, to be honest, that I, I love when I can look at something and there's one sentence that I know no one else will notice or appreciate what I did in that sentence. But I put a little bit of me into that and it'll make it past the client. And it won't hurt the client's objective, but that's like my piece of myself that I get to leave. So when I write something for someone else, like I ghostwrite it for them and it goes on a huge platform and my name is nowhere attached to it and no one knows who, you know, it's not assigned to someone other than myself. I can look at that and understand that all these people are reading something and there's a bit of me in it. Yeah. So I had, I was having beers with a copywriter. He actually referenced a couple of things. He's like, oh, I saw that you guys did this and, you know, this long form piece you did this. He's like, you were reading Winston Churchill at the time. And it's like, one, you knew I was writing it because you saw my signature. And two, he referenced what I was reading at the time because he was able to see the influence. He's a smart guy. <laughs> that's the best. There's there's nothing better than that than when someone picks up something like yeah. that and you're like, yes, that's exactly what I was like, what yeah, I was, I was like, that's what I was reading. Yes, that's exactly what I was trying to do. Use someone else's brilliance for myself. <laughs> yeah, what's the quote? Good artist copy, great artist steal. Steal, yeah. I don't know who said it, but I'm pretty sure it was Jason Rhodes. <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy, so who are some writers that now as you're looking to write more that you want to steal from? Hey, so this is actually one of his tasks right now jimmy the new writer on the scene is developing his voice and the task is to go out there and find great writers to find the things that inspire him i didn't say steal but that was you know that was hidden in there so have you started have you been thinking about it because i told you i said if you look at everything i've written you'll be able to see whitman you'll be able to see tennyson you'll be able to see aaron sorkin joss whedon a range but there's a, there's a tennyson tennyson nice yeah but I you'll be able like to him. see them if you really go and look at stuff you can see a lot of the language, a lot of the patterns, because that's the stuff I've read or watched over the years, and you can definitely pick up on it in a lot of things. I still need to, I'm still, I'm thinking about it. Um, so you haven't done it. I, I put one, I put one. You're fired. I put one line in there from. Uh, Your car is being a, towed a, a right now. Henry Rollins article in the LA I do Weekly. like Henry Rollins. Uh, yeah, I, I like him. I don't love him, but I like him. He's but listening. I've, I've been thinking. He and Gary Vee are waiting for us. <laughs> no, you can't lump, lump Harry, Henry Rollins in with Gary no, Vee. No, <laughs> that's not fair. Henry Rollins right now is beating up Gary Vee in the parking lot. <laughs> uh, Would you like me to send my portfolio over and you can maybe find somewhere to start? Uh, your, your suggested re reading list? No, I I first need to, I'm trying to map out. Well, I'm at literally my writing, so you, you know you can. Oh, I know. Yeah. Well, yeah, sure. <laughs> Because <laughs> um, no. he's never read any of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> first time for everything. Uh, but I'm first. First of all, I'm trying to think of how I'll trans or I'll I'll steal essentially from other, other writers uh, and how that'll relate to my. Because I never really thought about writing in my voice as a, a real thing, you know. But I I, I obviously recognize it's a thing. Mm -hmm. I, I, that's that's that also happened with storytelling. I, I never really I, I was like a little apprehensive to storytelling. Even I felt I felt cheesy. And then I said after you know James and whatever uh, after some teaching points. He stood on, on a desk and did the Dead Poets Society after a couple of weeks. Essentially getting super inspired, I, I, learning yeah. so much. Right. But it also was just like me stepping away and being like, you're being an idiot, you know? Everything's a story. Like, everybody likes stories. Like, there's Obviously. Yeah. So then how do you use it as a weapon? Right. How do you use it to yeah. your advantage? So I'm going to... Oh, I thought you were offering me something. Um, 
a beer? I'm go- Zim I- just drinks a beer <laughs> holding from the bottom. <laughs> It's like it's empty. like like you're drinking brandy. I <laughs> uh, see. The problem is, I I like to read more uh, businessy books. Oh like, no! Yeah, no. Uh, you're fired. <laughs> well, I'm reading, Your car is being towed right now in the parking lot. I'm reading Tipping Point right now by Gladwell. Oh, that's okay. I read. I read. That's I read not all Malcolm books. So much. That's more of a. Yeah, that's a. Um, that's like a, what I call like Pop Target psychology. books. Mm-hmm. Target books mean like the the things they sell at Target, which <laughs> everyone could read. Yeah. yeah. Well, my, my biggest problem with business books is someone has an idea that their publisher tells them is interesting. And in the first chapter, they illustrate this idea. And it's fantastic. And you're like, wow, that was a that was a cool point that they made. And then for the next 19 chapters, they repeat that point, stressed, stretched into case studies that had very little to do with their original Jason, point. Jason, Dave said the exact same thing to me earlier today about a book. That is a great takeaway from this podcast. With most business books, you read chapter one and you've gotten everything. You, yeah. So that's that's actually nice. Like th- this is a very you've given a lot of utility yep. for audience. You read the first chapter and that's it. The rest are just the most important <laughs> thing you can do at this point, Jimmy, is obsessively read, but don't read, but figure out what you like and why you like it. Yeah. So you know how I throughout the day I send you. Wait, why are you so puzzled by this task? I'm not. No, I'm not puzzled. I've got other. I'm I'm busy with other things, James. Is this the is this the main task? You throw stuff at me. No, but I'm looking at your eyes while, time. while we're talking about. No, it. I'm just thinking of like the, uh, reading a reading a novel. Why is that so challenging? Because I'd rather I'd, I'd rather read a business book or like a or a, you should read the Iliad. A, a it's a great epic. Like, I'd rather read. Do like, not read the Iliad. Don't read the Iliad. It's no. just watch the, Troy. I will not. Just watch Troy. Oh. Brad Pitt was amazing. I quit. <laughs> yeah, there's more abs in Troy. I've got no excuses not to. I mean, I've. All of Vonnegut's sitting on my shelf and oh, Orwell yeah. and Vonnegut's fantastic. Um, you know what you're, you you got to do, Jimmy. You know how I send you articles like probably once a day and rant about why I like them, and it's like a five minute long expose about. <laughs> yeah. The next week, I want you to send an article my way and just rant about why you like it or what about the journalist style yeah, or that's the... a good. Deal. I want the same thing, but I want one of two things. I'll give you an option. I'll give you. Give me a poem that makes you do that, or pick a TV show or movie written by Aaron Sorkin and pick one line uh, and do it. I already follow a savage poet on Instagram. No, 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 no. I don't want an underground rapper. No, no, no. This is a this is a young woman, I believe. Um, I I will not try to pronounce her name, but she writes some unbelievable poetry. I suggest you guys will all follow her. I will share with you after. It's readable, and it's got, like you were saying, rhythm. You know, not all poetry has rhythm, even though that's kind of at the heart of it. Um, and it's got rhythm, even though it looks so odd, and it's just really moving stuff. I, I always forget her name. It's like Naraya, but I'll I'll share with you guys. But I'll do that for sure. Sorkin wrote Newsroom, right? Newsroom, West yeah. Wing, Sports Night, yeah. Studio 60. I won't, I won't watch West Wing. Uh, Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. We're going to take a turn here. And why will you not watch West Wing? The greatest show ever made. The greatest TV show ever made. I just, I, I can't, I can't go back and watch West Wing. There's you, a lot of walking and talking. Important but things are is happening. It, did you try to watch the first season? They still had pagers and, and no, no internet. No, but that's exactly why I won't be able to get into it. It is the best TV show ever made. That's that is a strong opinion. It's good, but it's not the best ever made. <laughs> the Wire. He is a very We good talked about that last episode. Show. The Wire is terrible. He is a very good writer though. Yeah. <laughs> nah, he's a little heavy-handed. I'm sure he me. appreciates that, Jimmy. Yeah. Well, the only reason I'm saying is cuz I love Quentin Tarantino and oh. he and Sorkin's oh. like his 
favorite. What's your favorite Tarantino monologue? Uh, Inglorious Bastards in the opening scene. That's a great. That's my my favorite monologue. Yeah. Yeah. You can't really beat that. It's. Wait, did you like the scene or did you like the actor? I liked everything. It's a great script. Yeah. It's great writing. I don't like Quentin Tarantino you at didn't, all. You didn't see Inglorious Bastards? I saw it. They they Someone leaked the script really early on. It was all over like Reddit or whatever it was at the time. I read it. I hated it when I read it. Saw it when it came out. Hated it. Were, like, you, trying just, to pun, were you trying to... James hates puns. Were you trying to pun just now? No. You read it on Reddit? <laughs> no. Did you? That was an intentional pun. No. I want to hear. It's not even a good pun. I want to hear. It was, why great, it was a great. It's good drama. It's good dramatic writing. I think like so. That good could be, storytelling, could, but not good writing. Good question. I think I had to read it as a script. No, that's a fair I l- point. I love. It's a great point. I love point. going against the Yale. No, no, it's a great the Yale point. professor. And I, me, Mr. State School from Virginia versus Yale professor. Correction. George Mason University is a private university. No, it's not. It's a state school. State school. Yeah, I thought so. I thought the same things. This yeah, studio but, to record the podcast costs as much as much as the state school. Zim, state? Zim, that was pretty Yaley of you to, yeah. to question him after he went there. Such a Yaley. I, 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 in my head, I was questioning it, but I would never dare voice it. Now I know the audience is definitely going to hate. And me. you went to private school, right? Yeah. Yeah. Man, state this school. Table. Boy. No, actually, I'm, I'm, I did one of each. It's pretty ironic that you're the only I'm one the that only doesn't one. like Tarantino. Yeah. <laughs> private. You know, they, they say a lot of, uh, you know, private school people, they, they lack in social abilities. That, that would be more of high school, I would assume, because high school are more formative years. Yeah, you think so? And I went to a public school, and I believe you went to a private school. Did not. You went didn't? to a public high school. I thought you went to a, a prep school. Nope. Oh. Nope, I did not. Did you live close by to one? No, we didn't we didn't have a lot of those in Virginia. (laughs) Did you wear Sperry's to high school? Uh, I was the only one in my entire county wearing Sperry's. (laughs) (laughs) Going back to a point that we have well we have a slight break, break uh, the beer out. <laughs> we're just keep it on. Keep yeah. it on. <laughs> you know, I will say this. I wanted yeah, to. Because I also like to look that I'm still on my first drink and you have two empty cups in front of you. This yeah. You finish the first one. All right. So, for the last, we got 15 minutes or so left here. So, for the last little bit, why don't we talk about different ways of working, right? So, it's like someone has decided they want to be a professional writer. It's like, now what? What industry do they go into? What writing style do they set up? Do they try to get full time somewhere? Do they. You know, take up the freelance gig economy? Do they go the Jimmy route and try to intern somewhere and just... Because that was kind of my route, too, that I I had this journalism background, but it was entirely new to marketing, and I just did the Jimmy route, got in somewhere, and then proved myself as a writer. Well, you right. took an entirely odd route, which it requires you to be great to be able to take that route. It really does, because to go from, I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to go get a master's, come out and you went to another job and you weren't happy, and you're like, no, that I have something, I have to do it. And you took an administrative assistant. That was your title, right? Administrative assistant. You took an an administrative assistant. You came at that and then just proved to everyone that you had a skill until you got promoted. It was pretty quickly, actually. It was only a couple of months. You got bumped right out of that. That's incredible. That's rare for someone to be able to do that. But on your point, on your question... I get hit with this a lot. Specifically, people who look at my like portfolio, they're like, oh, you wrote for that show, you wrote for that thing, and can you can you meet with my buddy, and they want to they wanna get into blank. And 99% of those people just want a job. They just want a job, and they do nothing for it. They don't try, they don't write. It's kind of an important thing. If you want to be a writer, just write. 
just right. So I think that Christopher Hitchens, who's I think one of the great writers of our generation. I have no idea who that is. He wrote uh, God is Not Great, uh, Hitch, uh, Hitch 22. Was that his uh, autobiography? Hitch, came out? Hitch with uh, Will Smith? No. <laughs> he was a very con- That was a good movie. He was kind of uh, like in the- Better than Tarantino. The Noam Chomsky, Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins type vein of a just intellectual. He wrote a lot of- He, he wrote, wrote about- Controversial because he used to be hardcore left. Then he became an outspoken advocate for the Iraq war. He had a regular column in Slate. And I think he also once said, like, people like, oh, how do I become a journalist? Like, how do I become a journalist like you? He's like, you just need to write. He's like, if you think you can do this every day, go for it. And I think See, he said that he's like, most thing. people, he says most cannot. They can do it once or twice, but so, they can't. Yeah, mo- yeah exactly that. Most people, yeah. like, so that's a big thing with copywriting and advertising. Someone will write and they'll go, look, I just did it. I just did it. It's not that hard. The true copywriter, the true writer gets hit with, and Jimmy, I'm looking at you, you're going to get hit with this challenge so much. We need a tagline. We need a headline. Give me 50 of them by tomorrow morning. Need a script? It went wrong. I need three more scripts. You have 20 minutes. That's a true writer to be able to just punch stuff out at any time when it's needed on brand with the message or, you know, that's specifically this industry. But anything is you have to be able to do it and you have to be able to do it. It has to be a it has to become an instinct to be able to do it at a moment's notice in various ways, if you want to create that instinct, you have to do it. You have to do it over and over again. It has to become part of your life. You can't just go home and go do other things. You can't just say it's a dream and I really want this and I think I'm going to be great at it and not have that ability. I think speaking to that, James, I feel like uh, for all of us, we write one thing, but I don't think we're ever like, we're done. All right, next. If you're able to do that, then writing, you can do it for a career. You just have to be able to enjoy it. Or not even just... Do it again and again. It doesn't let it, it doesn't bother you. Even at the end of a long day, because I have sort of different registers in my brain when it comes to writing. Uh, after I do a lot of writing at work, maybe it's time for a client. I have other projects I'm writing at home. These different different articles. It feels like a totally fresh process when I go home. No matter how much writing I've done all day, when I go home and say I'm going to write something for myself, it feels completely different. What I always tell people is the the single best predictor I think of someone being able to be a professional writer is how much they hate every single thing they write. And the more you hate every single thing you write, the more you want to write the next thing that's a little bit better, and you'll keep working at it, and you'll keep never being satisfied. I feel like we have... I, well, you don't complain that much about this to me, but I often will complain to, to Jason, like, I'll write something big. He's like, he's like, well, you just need to change it. He's like, is it bad? Tell me, is it bad? He's like, no, no, it's not bad. He's like, nothing always bad. It's just it's not... It needs to be changed a bit. It's not there yet. It's not there yet, but that's different. I'm saying, like, because I'm very self-conscious still when it comes to my writing. Uh, I never feel great about anything I write, ever. See, I think that's funny because uh, I had a conversation with uh, Aaron LeMay, creator of Saints Row Video Game, art director for Halo, or creative director, I think he was creative director. He's a, a guru all around in the creative field. But he said, what does it mean to be a professional? What does it mean for you to be a professional writer? One word, what does it mean? And I said, confidence. And I believed it, confidence. I said it, with, I said it confidently. And it's like the one thing... We lack so much. Like all of us, like how we're contributing every single day, the written word. And we all then go, what do you think? Like, oh, is this good enough? Well, like, the difference but is. But that's part of writing. There's no perfection with writing. Though. And I think that's the idea. You get to sort of accept there is no such perfect writing. Well, it's just fun- you're constantly iterating and trying to improve it. The funny thing about all of us, though, and this is exactly what someone needs to have, which is I could write something and I could, I could hate it. I'm looking at the page and I'm going, you know, 
this isn't good. Like, uh, this isn't what, I don't think this is something that anyone should be writing or proud of. But then I go to show it to whoever's going to be editing it, whoever's going to be approving it, whoever's the ultimate gatekeeper for the words that I've done. And the minute they some, say something in there is not perfect, I'm going to stand up on the table and I'm going to argue about that sentence that I hated 30 seconds ago. Right. And that's what it takes. You have to hate it yourself, but you have to be willing to defend it to the death. I think our first time ever having lunch together, we went and got margaritas. And you, we had just come from a meeting where someone challenged a single word in something I wrote. And I fought hard for that word. And I explained it five different ways why it made sense. And then you asked me about it. And I was like, I don't know. I just made that <laughs> up. Like, I was defending it. That word, take it or leave it. I don't care. But I kicked a table, flipped things, like, but I would not let them change that word. And that was the best thing you ever taught me. And it, that was why when you, when you started, I think I gave you the same kind of speech. That Of all the things I taught you? Of all the things you taught me, that is the, the single most thing that's helped my career what? and helped my writing is just to... Being stubborn? Wait, you haven't been listening, Jimmy? <laughs> Welcome to the yeah, podcast. Jimmy... <laughs> What's that one single thing, though? Being stubborn. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Being professionally stubborn. <laughs> <laughs> that, you know, as a, as a creator of things, it's really, really hard to have confidence in what you've created and to defend it when someone else challenges it. And the reality is, is in a creative field, everything you do is going to be subjective. You know, you could be... I bet James Patterson sits there and there's a party. Why do you keep referencing James Patterson? Because <laughs> I saw the, mes the master class this morning. You know, they, they have that, it <laughs> yeah, pops yeah, up yeah. on my Facebook feed every single day. You know James the best master class? Aaron Sorkin. So Aaron Sorkin's <laughs> trying to teach me screenwriting. <laughs> Dennis Dustin Hoffman's trying to teach me acting. Every day in my Facebook feed, I get inundated <laughs> with these goddamn advertisers. You know, the people are the worst. The nerve. <laughs> I, I, know, I know what you're saying, but I, I think you have to earn that. Because I don't feel like I've earned the right to be stubborn yet. Then you're you're shooting yourself in the foot. Then I'll be stuck. Well, okay, I guess I I do because I'll be stubborn about. Like, I'm I'm not saying certain certain words, but I if James or you or Zim says maybe do this here, I'll try it at least, and I'll look at it myself for a while. Well, so does that's, that mean that's you're not, not a writer? I'm, well, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying to disregard the no. the opinions of people that are coming from a place that's more experienced or that you know what I mean. I'll at the end of the day, the gatekeeper is who you're writing for, and it has to meet their needs. I'm not necess necessarily saying disregard what they're saying, but just be willing to defend your craft and your opinion and what you what your little bit of you that you really love in the piece. Yeah, well that's why I that's why I think it's important to like I don't think I'll I can ever write a book. Like I'd like to, but like I wrote the, one it's called dissertation. You're not missing it. I don't much. I don't think I can ever write a book. No one's read it. And no. but like that's why I like are what we're doing. That's why I like writing for. Mar I didn't. I didn't know what copywriting. I thought copywriting was the the, the only le was a legal thing. I thought it was R I G H T up until last July. I didn't even know about it, you know. But I I think it's it's fun. Copywriting needs to be rebranded. It's a because, terrible word. Well, that's why. But also, in that posting was not a copywriting intern. No, I know. You're a writing intern. You became a writing apprentice well, because you were kicking ass. And you're not a copywriting as your full time. A copywriter is your full time. I know because you think I stink. <laughs> no, you're great. I'm but kidding. No. But, did you get your offer letter? Yes. Did you read the first line? Yes. Yeah, and I know you wrote that. Of course I wrote it. <laughs> I said, yeah, copywriting because is... Because you are so much more. You are so much more. No, That's a good I thing. I know. I know. I, I just knew that was, it was uh, he's you. He's fired. He's fired. I knew it was you once I saw so much more. So much more. Yeah. Because I, I do think... I. And every single copywriter I've ever worked with, if when this goes live and they hear it, they're going to think it's them. And it's probably true. But copywriters in advertising are almost entirely idiots. Lazy idiots who cannot write. 
I just keep experiencing that over and over and over. It's why I couldn't find an intern. It's why we do not have any other copywriters until you. They're idiots. You were smart. You work hard. You study. That's not normal. You are more than a copywriter. Copywriting, I don't, I don't know what went wrong with this industry, but portfolio schools are screwing people up. They really are. They're teaching you to go in, do three print ads, and write headlines for them, and maybe one tagline, maybe that goes across the bottom. I don't know. And then make that your portfolio. Stick that up online, and someone will hire you. And then you're going to get a job. And if you don't work your ass off and learn how to do the job, then you'll get fired. You'll get laid off. Portfolio school is a waste of time. You learn the job when you get there, and you learn how to actually write. The problem is that some of those people don't know how to write. Well, yeah, and to, to your point, out of all the things I read and the people I spoke with before you know, in the process of applying and whatnot, I think only one person said, just write and post it somewhere. Everybody else was like, oh, you got to put a book together. You got to put a book together. And that goes to your point. It's like, all right, yeah, like the headline is God and glory, but that doesn't, that didn't, now that, now I know that I didn't get better yeah. at writing when I was sitting in a cafe writing 500 headlines because I got here and I realized my writing was still I felt like I was still in college the first week. Yeah, writing those 500 headlines is what got you in the door. I mean, there's so many creatives that haven't even taken that step to trying to write themselves. You know, there's people that videographers that go, you know, I want to be a videographer. All right, well, what have you, what have you shot? And they kind of shrug their shoulders. And mm-hmm. I really want to do it. Okay. Well, You're right. So then really want to do it yesterday. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, yeah. I just, I, I knew we were going to talk about books and novels, and I'm embarrassed because I'm not very well read beyond some of like the classics and, and whatnot. But I will make the argument that this goes back to my book argument. I'm, I'm not fit to write a book, but I'm fit to write for marketing because I'm a people person and I know people pretty well. And I observe and listen to people. And that's I think that's my that's at my core, and that's why this is this that that's why I was attracted to this because I knew I could write. Like I, I was in college and I'd read my peers' papers, love you all, but I was like, all right, I'm better writer than you in general structure and whatnot. Hey, so let's, let's be real, they're yeah. all a bunch of spoiled jerks. No, some of you are not. Twenty <laughs> percent of you are not. <laughs> yeah. I don't buy the whole though. Put that I on can't. the record. I can't write X or I can't write Y because it's like if you can write at the end of the day, you can write. No, I know. I just don't anything. think my life has been exciting enough yet to write a book. Oh, well, not, yeah, no you one's went rollerblading in a tube top in yeah, New York I, City. I could write a good New Yorker article okay. for that. It gets me excited. I want to read the article. Maybe the April Fool's <laughs> edition. Right, I think we're just about at an hour anyway, so we might as well just wrap this up. Wrap it up, Jason Rose. Wrap it up, Jason Rose. The smooth voice of Jason Rose. All right. Let me just take a deep breath here. Get maximum silkiness. <laughs> well, thanks for listening. I hope this was of use to someone out there listening to the four of us pontificate about the pedestal in which we live every day on as professional writers and the, the extreme craft it takes to join us here on this Mount Olympus of creative yeah. output. <laughs> I hate this so much. <laughs> Come drink with us in the next one. <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening. Is that really our hour?